basically the leaner you are, the more conservative you have to be with the energy deficit. So there are two things that are extremely important if you want to optimize muscle growth and fat loss. That is your training volume and your energy balance. And the exact sweet spot there can make a very big difference in your results. If you don't diet aggressively enough, you're just wasting time. It's not too bad. But if you diet too aggressively, especially in contest prep, you will just end up losing muscle mass. Welcome to the HVMN Podcast, your resource for evidence-based nutritional strategies, cognitive performance, and fitness science. Thank you for joining us. 10% body fat. Achieving 10% body fat is a popular fitness freak goal. For men, that often means finally getting those Hollywood-style abs. But what if you're already sitting at an impressive 8% body fat with a goal of getting to 4%? At that level, an incredibly methodical and disciplined approach to diet and training is required. We'd go a step further and say that knowledge and understanding of the science and mechanisms of fat burning, lean muscle growth, and the like are equally necessary. At such a low body fat percentage already, what else could one possibly do to get even leaner? Our guest this week, Menno Henselmans, is an expert in this level of fitness. With the number one ranked fitness and nutrition website on Huffington Post, Menno is a well-known bodybuilder, coach, model, and scientist in the low-carb community. Similar to biohackers like our host, Jeffrey Wu, Menno applies his background in advanced data analytics to human performance. In this episode, Jeff and Menno chat about the basics of fitness, how different countries approach it, the best way an athlete can incorporate intermittent fasting into training, and practical tips for fat burning. Jeff, take it away. Menno, thanks for coming on the HVMN podcast. My pleasure. So a little bit of a time zone shift here. So we're hosting from San Francisco and you're in Portugal. I guess not come off super stereotypical, but how's the weather over there? I mean, in San Francisco, pretty sunny, pretty smooth. We're just going into spring. Yeah, yeah the climate in general is really good in Portugal, especially during the spring and autumn. I'm looking over the beach here, actually, and uh, it's Labor Day, so it's super crowded. Everyone's at the beach here. <laughs> well, thank you for staying inside and doing the podcast on a beach day. So. You cover an interesting gamut of human performance, physical training, both training other people as well as training yourself. Maybe the way to start the conversation here is, I would say that the sophistication in terms of diet, nutrition, and exercise protocols has really gotten defined in specific in the last couple of years. So let's zoom back in history. How did you first get into the space of training, the science of physiology. What was your story here? I'd always been into sports. I'd done every sport that was available in my uh, region, which isn't that impressive as in the US, but uh, in the Netherlands, you know, I've done probably 10 sports or so. And at some point I started strength training, which I already started doing, you know, in my basement and with my father, I built sort of a homemade squat rack and bought some dumbbells <laughs> and stuff when I was like 13. And soon after, uh, or a couple of years, I started training in an actual gym, uh, mainly because at volleyball, we were also doing strength training. And that sort of stuck, but the team fell apart. So I kept doing strength training. And I really liked that. And everything I do, I research. So that's basically when I began researching exercise science and nutrition. I naturally have a very data-driven outlook on things. So I try to look for the facts and not just opinions, you know, because if you ask a hundred different people, you get possibly a hundred different opinions mm -hmm. and you're no further to an answer than you were before. So I gradually 
basically, as I also matured in, uh, in development and school, I began researching more the actual science. Uh, now, basically, I, I only read scientific literature and I don't read anything away from the primary source, pretty much. And that developed quite gradually. I think everyone sort of goes through phases where the first time you Google something, you're not looking for a scientific article because you want a big picture view. You first need some idea of you know, what you're even getting into, what the priorities are, where you were started. And then you can start honing in on specific topics and looking at scientific research. So I think I, I went through the same kind of journey there and didn't start off working in fitness, but quite quickly realized as a business consultant, which I started working as, that it wasn't for me. It was fine, but more the career path that my parents wanted of me than what my true passion was. Right. So I started working for myself, started writing about fitness, just getting the word out, basically spreading the truth. Or I felt there were things that were fitness, especially because evidence-based fitness wasn't very hot at the time. I felt that I could contribute there, especially with my background now in data analytics and scientific research. And I first just started writing and then people started asking me for coaching. And so I started doing online coaching and then people started asking me for mentoring and how do you get these kind of client results? And I started mentoring people and set up a group where I taught other people how to become PTs. And that is now uh, my online personal trainer course, which is an official certification program. And it's now expanded into several other languages. And that's still what I do as the two main things now, basically the coaching and teaching other people how to be a good online PT or in-person PT as well. A very organic journey just from a self-interest and then people responding to the thoughts you're putting out there. And in terms of experimenting and applying it to yourself, obviously that's the N equals one. That's the baseline of if before you sort of teach others, you should probably see if mm -hmm. you can actually do what you're teaching. Walk me through some of your personal accolades or achievements. I mean, obviously it's from some of your photos and your Instagram, you see a very lean physique, very cut physique. I don't imagine that that's what you look like when you're a 16 year old or seven, you know, as you're growing mm -hmm. up, talk us through that journey. Yeah, I've been training since I was basically, like I said, when I was 13 or so, or even earlier, depending on what you constitute as uh, training. And still I'm trained basically every day, uh, renowned for my high frequency training approach uh, for those that really want to maximize muscle hypertrophy. So I'd say I walk the talk and I've done some fitness modeling and I've competed. Probably not going to do that in the immediate future because it puts a very heavy strain on uh, what you can do business-wise and how much you can write and research because you know by the time you're at four percent body fat uh, basically all, all of your interests narrow down to food food and more food so that's probably not what i'm going to do uh, anytime soon but maybe in the future again and i do maintain a six-pack year-round so i'm at a happy sustainable uh, body fat level i'm about i'm six foot one a good 90 kilos with abs so that's I think a good uh, year-round maintainable. That's around 198 pounds, just doing some quick back envelope calculation. Yeah, about 200 pounds. Yeah. So uh, I said yeah. 90 kilos. Yeah, 200 yeah. pounds. Was this a slow progression as you just slowly train more and then you wanted to go down to 4% body fat? Obviously, at 4% body fat, I mean, that is extremely <laughs> lean. You probably cannot sustain that kind of body fat for too long because one would probably die. But I'm mean, curious to get to see your journey. You're interested in fitness to 4% body fat and competing. Mm -hmm. What were some of the key seminal points that led you down that path? It's a stepwise progression. So basically until 
age 22 or something, maybe basically college. And they're like, I just lifted and had some cut and bulk phases at some point. I started doing that, but I just was interested in more muscle growth and fat loss, but nothing too crazy. You know, I don't think I ever, I ever became leaner than 8% or so. I went on surfing holiday, so I wanted to be pretty lean for that, but that's like maybe 8%. So, you know, very lean, but not contest shape. Right. And I started taking things more seriously when I started working as a coach. And at some point, I first did modeling because personally, I prefer that, creating art, if you will, and something you can take home. And of course, also something you can use business-wise if you have good shots done, that really helps. So then I started doing some modeling and then also some people uh, like that. So I got some invitations to uh, low-level modeling gigs. And as I graduated in my career as a PT and online coach, uh, at some point, I also decided that I should really actually compete because even though a photo shoot and a comp- fitness competition are sort of the same, physiologically speaking, it's not 100% the same experience. Yep. So I felt that because I was coaching a lot of people that were competing, I felt that I should actually compete as well. So competed in the US actually. And yeah, that's basically still the level where I'm at. I, mean, I think I'm honestly pretty much at my natural muscular potential and was before the uh, competition. So if I now got down to that same body fat level, I probably look pretty much exactly the same. Huh. Maybe there's always some things you can improve and have a little better muscle attention, but probably I'd, I'd be at a similar level. I mean, it's all in all, it's the culmination of many, many years of lifting. And if you can do it all again, and uh, you can look back and everything, all the programs that I followed that didn't work. Uh, that's why I say stepwise progression, because of all the years I've lifted, probably Four years of actual progression, I'd say, is in there. So four years of solid progress, all in all, and the rest is just finding out what works and where to get there. (laughs) So that cuts the question then. So I know that probably a lot of our listeners are very, very specific, but perhaps a vast majority of them, maybe I'm overcounting the laziness of my listeners here, but just speaking for myself, how about that? When I was going through college, people generally know that they should work out. They should probably do some of the standard lifts. They do should do some bench, deadlifts, squats, mm-hmm. and maybe do a little bit of cardio. But that's very kind of basics of just not becoming totally sedentary. What in your experience is the biggest misconceptions a very basic style workout versus what has really been impactful for you as you are really optimizing your physique? I think, especially in the US, if you have those basics down, you train hard to do the big compound lifts, you're already way ahead of uh, average, especially in the Netherlands, for example. And uh, I've lived in over 50 countries by now. So I have some idea of how fitness looks like in uh, various countries. Yeah. And The U.S. is pretty up there. Probably Norway is number one, I'd say, in terms of general average level of fitness and fitness knowledge, at least natural. And the U.S. is pretty high up there, especially San Francisco, California area. Yeah. So, you know, I think those, if you have protein, calories, you know, the big compound lifts that you're actually training hard, then you definitely have the basics down. And that's pretty much every client I have knows those things. And that gets you through the newbie gains and into some intermediate level of fitness. And that's, for most people, the point where you have to start being more meticulous and taking things into account, like nutrient timing, specifics of exercise selection, complementary exercises, more niche topics, more advanced topics, periodization, to really take it to the uh, advanced level and potentially compete or do something like a photo shoot or just 
look awesome in daily life. What did your protocol look like to get down to 4% to compete or do a photo shoot? I mean, I guess that might be a nice topic as people potentially transition into optimizing for their summer beach body. Okay, they're generally fit, generally pretty clean, but I want to optimize in four, eight weeks to really cut down and lean up. Obviously, some strategies on weight loss would be potentially considering a ketogenic mm-hmm. diet, fasting, intermittent fasting. You know, what were some of the things that you've seen work with your clients or for yourself? And maybe in a competition setting, obviously, I don't think most people are trying to cut down to 4%, but curious to mm-hmm. hear what it's like to cut down to 8% and then what it's like from 8 to 4. Things definitely change at that point. And it really differs what your long term goal is because I'm a big proponent if you just want to look good in general of only implementing sustainable methods. Yeah. And the specific types of strategies you employ are highly individual. For example, intermittent fasting, ketogenic diets, I think those are very valuable tools, but they're certainly not for everyone. So, for example, on intermittent fasting, there's good research indicating that they work well for certain individuals who are more prone to depressive eating and also people that have a more active social life at night. Uh, especially people that go out a lot because it allows you to have a higher caloric intake of your day at that point Mm. of the day. And people that naturally don't have that much of an appetite in the morning. And in terms of nutrient timing, it also generally works better if you train somewhere in the afternoon or evening uh, because faster training in the morning and then only eating late at night is generally very suboptimal for muscle growth. So those are important considerations for whether you do intermittent fasting. Another thing is activity level. In that some research finds that, especially in free living conditions, people with higher activity level, if they do intermittent fasting, that can result in a lower energy expenditure. So if you have a very active job, and then by that I mean you're literally on your feet all, of, all day, you're just literally moving around, right. then that might also be a consideration to have an earlier meal. Whereas if you're more sedentary, you probably have nothing, uh, no downsides of intermittent fasting. Yeah, I want to yeah add some color to that because I think those are probably some nuanced points there where talking about intermittent fasting and if you have an active lifestyle, you want to make sure you're not calorically restricted, right? So intermittent mm-hmm. fasting is time restriction versus caloric calorie restriction. So I absolutely agree with you that if you are very active and you intermittent fast and you are accidentally calorie restricting, that is obviously not optimal for maintaining lean muscle mass. And I think in terms of like the eating window, the protein sweet spot window after a workout, I think that we actually had Brad Schoenfeld, a researcher, looking at some of the studies here. And he was saying that Mm -hmm. ideally you have protein during and after that workout. But the window is actually pretty broad. But I would also agree with you that if it's morning and then you don't eat in in 12 hours later, that's probably missing the sweet spot in terms of muscle uptake. Mm -hmm. But one might not necessarily say like you need to eat right after working out, but the closer is probably more optimal. But don't be too stressed out if you have to do something for an hour before you can eat. Yeah, I'm very much in agreement with uh, Brad Schoenfeld, who is a good friend of mine and someone I highly respect in um, exercise science and uh, nutritional fitness. And basically, we both recommend, not to put words in his mouth, but I think we're pretty much in agreement that you probably want to sandwich your workouts between about a five to six hour intermeal interval, which means that you have a workout, you have a meal before and you have a meal after. And you don't want to let more than six hours or five if you're a more advanced training pass between that meal and that meal, which sandwich your workout in the middle. Mm. So that's a general a good guideline. And then there's you know some more finesse in terms of how much protein you want in both of those meals. And that depends a bit on if you have many meals before. Generally, at least 0.4 gram per kilogram body weight of protein, which is 
at least 20 grams of high quality protein for most people yep. uh, before and probably double that, if not more, afterwards especially if you don't have many more uh, meals afterwards. Yeah, I didn't want to get us too off track there, but we're talking about cutting to 8%. What are some of the techniques there and what it's like to get to 8%? And then I've been approximately that cut, but I've never been down to 4% cut. And I imagine that it's exponentially harder to go from 20 to 10 and then 10 to 8 and then 8 to 4. Talk us through the getting to 8 and then getting mm-hmm. to 4. There are two two big things that are different with contest prep than... Uh, any other cut and a big psychological factor is that it's not sustainable so by definition you don't have to it's liberating in the sense that you know you don't have to sustain this and therefore you can also employ uh, more aggressive dieting strategies higher cardio and the like because you know that this is uh, a short time thing yeah in terms of actual physiologically what happens what you need to do to lose fat it's not different which generally requires you have to create an energy deficit and you have to gradually decrease energy intake often uh, throughout contest prep as your metabolism will decrease unless you put on a very substantial amount of muscle mass during the contest prep, but that's generally not likely. So generally you're looking at tapering down your energy intake and you want to be very conservative. So basically the leaner you are, the more conservative you have to be with the energy deficit. So there are two things that are extremely important if you want to optimize muscle growth and fat loss. That is your training volume, and your energy balance. And the exact sweet spot there can make a very big difference in your results. If you don't diet aggressively enough, you're just wasting time. It's not too bad. But uh, if you diet too aggressively, especially in contest prep, you will just end up losing muscle mass. For example, one study by Garfettel even found that once people transitioned in high-level athletes, I think they call them elite athletes even, once they went from about a 20% to a 30% deficit, or they compare two groups with those yeah. deficits, they actually lost less fat and just more muscle mass. So in the 20% deficit group, they built some muscle and they lost a very sizable amount of fat. So progress was really well. They basically had body recomposition. Whereas in the 30% deficit group, they lost muscle mass. And because of that, probably, and a lower energy expenditure and worse uh, substrate partitioning so that the p ratio was worse meaning they lost muscle instead of fat they right. were burning off the muscle mass instead of the fat and they actually lost a bit less fat too so that illustrates how uh, detrimental it can be to be an excessive energy deficit but that's at a certain body fat range for individuals at a certain activity level so some people can be more aggressive some people have to be even more restrictive and generally in contest prep 20 percent is hefty for most people uh, so you're looking generally this is 20 percent below your basal metabolic rate uh, below maintenance energy intake okay so maintenance energy intake at that point is very strongly correlated with basal metabolic rate but generally maintenance is a bit higher because you also have exercise induced energy expenditure and the firmic effect of food added on top of that Got it. And just your overall daily uh, activity, energy expenditure. Right. So generally in contest prep, you're looking at more, sometimes even a 2.5% energy deficit, somewhere in between that 25 to 20%. And sending that to the individual is is very important. And then things like ketogenic diets and the like. Which is not easy to calculate, right? I mean, we're just talking about even basal metabolic rate. It's like kind of an estimation given your size. And unless you're in like a metabolic ward testing mm-hmm. everything and everything is controlled it's going to be guesstimated curious to hear 
in your experience, are you in a metabolic ward with your clients or are you helping them estimate? Sounds like there has to be some estimation on their daily steps, their daily exercise, calculating all that together. I guess calculating some of their diet. There's more of, as you mentioned, a thermic effect. Certain foods burn off a little bit more calories to burn than other foods. How are you calculating this? Is it more back of the envelope kind of estimating or how specific are you getting here? Very specific. I think the key difference or a key difference, I think, in my methods compared to what many other coaches I'd say do, is that I estimate every component of metabolic rate individually. So I estimate someone's thermic effect of food, their activity level, the energy deficit that uh, I want them to be at. I estimate their base metabolic rate separately, the energy expenditure from their uh, workout, from their given workout, and then all of that together to get the total. So many formulas simplify it. For example, they just say, you know, 15 calories per kilogram of body weight, something like that. Right. But then you lose out on a lot of accuracy for you know, a large part of the population. That works well, that kind of formula. And you can see that in research that sometimes you can go with a much simpler formula on average. But at the individual level, that will no longer suffice. So I think it's important to, um, or it's best to estimate every component individually and then aggregate the total. I mean, theoretically, what happens if you know what the actual causal drivers of uh, someone's metabolic rate are, which I just enumerated, thermic effect of food, energy expenditure from exercise and from daily life based on metabolic rate, which is primarily driven by total fat-free mass, then if you have all the components, you have a pretty good idea of the, the total as well. And then afterwards, you adjust that based on someone's body composition measures, depending on what someone has available. Um, generally, a pretty big component of uh, skin fold calipers, if mm. used in the right way, and weight. And uh, sometimes you have things like DEXA scans, but usually uh, you have to do with weight and skin fold calipers, right. uh, BIA scans sometimes, if someone has a good skill. And based on that, you change things. So it's very important to look at someone's actual rate of progression, because sometimes your estimation will still be off right. and uh, adjust it based on that, based on someone's energy intake, because you have to track that, report that. Make sure you're also doing that well, you know, you're using the, the correct food labels and the, like, not like random MyFitnessDatabase or MyFitnessPal entries. Right. And based on that, you have someone's energy intake, you have a good idea of their energy expenditure, you know what their body composition changes. Based on that, you have a pretty good idea of what state of energy balance they're in. And then you adjust it to the desired level. I do that on a weekly basis with my clients generally. That makes sense in terms of getting as specific as you can without sticking these people into a metabolic ward, which is a whole beast in itself. Yeah. Very cool. So in terms of getting from eight to four, sounds like you're being very rigorous around calculating each component of metabolism, breaking it down and targeting a window between a 2.5% to 20% deficit, which is pretty hefty if you're going to 20%. I mean, that's a pretty big deficit. Mm -hmm. So I guess going from ambient training to competition state or photo shoot state. So you're holding a 2.5 to 20% deficit for how long you're making this cut? What else are you doing on top of that? A long time. My last contest prep, which was basically from good apps to contest shape, was seven months, I think. Wow. Yeah, about seven months. So, But that was slow because I was originally set to compete uh, with the Brazilian IFBB, but the Dutch IFBB wouldn't let me for some reason because they were just lazy with the administrative work, actually. And that's why I competed in the U.S., so for most people, six months is a reasonable guideline if you're at a healthy athletic level to begin with, because these days, uh, that's very different from before, say, 10, 20 years ago, when 
12 weeks was generally considered contest prep. They were like, they were pretty off-season bulky yeah. and bodybuilders would be like, okay, now I'm going to contest prep and they do it in 12 weeks. One for one, of course, pharmaceutical assistance helps a lot. And secondly, standards were just very low. I mean, if you look at photos of Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is generally regarded as you know a massive icon of bodybuilding, and you just put like any top five classic bodybuilder at like a regional level event in the US or like European level, Arnold will have poor conditioning, comparatively <laughs> speaking. Yeah. So that's, you know, a major difference. And Arnold was like, oh, you have some separation in the quads. And now they're like, oh, no glutes variations, no pro card for you. I mean, you could say that's definitely happened across almost every single sport in the last recent years versus 20 years ago. I mean, just mm -hmm. sport has advanced, I think, a lot due to the education and the science and the evidence that's come out on sports science. I absolutely agree with you. So your cut was over seven months. So it sounds like that was more of a logistical issue rather than something that you planned ahead of time. But would you say that doing that cut over seven months helped you because you had such a long time to adapt or did it become so long that it just sort of backfired? Curious to hear that experience. I think I could get the same result now in four and a half months. Okay. Yeah. So you still recommend a longer cut process then? Yeah, but that's for actual contest prep, right? I yeah. had glute striations. So that's that's a whole different ballgame compared to uh, even a photo shoot. A photo right. shoot now, I could be ready for a photo shoot in eight weeks probably. Okay. So like a general fitness photo shoot where you just need six pack and not like glute striations and feathers on your quads. Sure. So it's good to put that into perspective. Hey listeners, if you're enjoying this episode thus far, please consider writing a review on our iTunes page. It really does help increase the visibility of our podcast. That's really the best way to support our work. In appreciation for your review, we'll hook you up with $15 of HVMN store credit. We also love it when we see you guys share our episodes that you've enjoyed on your Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And we often reshare those posts. Just tag us at our handle at HVMN. Now back to the show. So you have these fairly extended cuts. Sounds like one of the broad techniques is looking at a caloric or metabolic deficit. Are you changing your exercise? I want to talk about a little bit of your exercise protocols. And then I want to talk about, about macronutrients and nutrition protocols. Does your training change? Does the volume change? Does the type of exercises change? You know, for me recently, I've been doing a lot more calisthenics than, than doing in kettlebells versus you know, sort of standard compound lifts. Curious to hear about uh, the trade-offs and your thoughts on different forms of exercise. Not too much changes with my training programs for clients or myself in energy deficit compared to maintenance, with one big exception, and that's training volume. Generally, recovery capacity will be impaired by energy deficit. Mm -hmm. And we have one good study on uh, Ramadan, for example, finding that people made better strength development when they cut the volume by, I think it was 33%. So that's a suboptimal cut, but it still provides a good indication that you want probably a bit of a lower volume. And then if you combine it with contest prep, and especially for me, because I have very weak knees and elbows, there's also a big extra factor in terms of uh, prehabilitation. And that's also, I think, for many bodybuilders, why they recommend higher rep ranges before a contest. And some people rationalize that as greater energy expenditure, but that will be pretty trivial. The difference in energy expenditure compared to doing sets of eight or 15 is, is not that large. So the main reason it works for many people is because it's easier on the joints. Mm -hmm. Generally, the lower the intensity, the yep. easier it is on the joints. 
So being injury-free, of course, is, is absolutely paramount. If, if you get a massive shoulder injury and you cannot train your upper body and that happens you know, six weeks out and then you cannot train your upper body for three weeks, then you are screwed. Yep. That's pretty much replacing down the drain. So it's very important, especially because your recovery capacity is very much impaired, especially as a natural trainee, because your anabolic hormone levels will be very low, especially estradiol. Uh, estrogen is, is often regarded as a hormone that's that's all bad, it's like evil. Testosterone is the good hormone and estrogen is bad, but actually estrogen has many anti-catabolic functions. It's very good for connective tissue health. And you see that in many research, if you also with pharmaceuticals, if you cut someone's estrogen levels, injury rates skyrocket. So you really have to take into account when you go below the sustainable body fat range. Yeah, that's interesting. That reminds me of research out of Keith Barr's lab, who's a physiologist out in UC Davis. And he saw some data showing that women in different cycles of their period would have different ACL knee injury rates. And I think it is basically going back to your the point that yeah. you brought up, estrogen levels uh, impact tissue connectivity strength and higher and lower. And there's a different variation on that strength, which is interesting that there's also application from a bodybuilding perspective on men. Mm -hmm. But I think in the common parlance, it's too easy to just say testosterone, men, estrogen, woman. I mean, these are all just physiological hormones that do different impacts on the body. The hormone itself does not classify itself as female or male, right? It, these are just things that exactly. impact our body in different ways. So it sounds like you kind of increase rep number to reduce load on joints, which makes a lot of sense. What kind of general exercise are you doing? Are you doing calisthenics? Are you doing you know squats, bench, deadlifts, free weights, machines? Kind of walk us through a little bit of details there. I don't use that many machines generally because there are certain machines that are really good, like a convergent chest press machine, for example, offers a big advantage over the barbell bench press and that a barbell can never have a convergent movement path. So the convergent means your hands right, go right. together. Uh, isolateral is also sometimes what it's called, uh, which makes no sense at all, but biomechanically. But hammer strength, for example, uses that isolateral hammer strength press. It adds range of motion and majorly improves the resistance curve to so that you can get high tension on the pectoralis major, the pecs, throughout a larger range of motion. Right. And it's also easier on the elbows for many people, also on the shoulders, because the barbell bench press is particularly hard in the bottom position, which is also the most injurious position. So uh, adding things like bands and chains are good ways to improve that or use a convergent chest press machine. Big compound lifts appear in many of my programs, especially the squat exercise like chin-ups, big fan of ring chin-ups in particular. Uh, overhead press, also a big fan of for those whose shoulders uh, are built for it. Many squat variations, also single leg squat variations, then ab machine work. I like leg extensions, leg curls, many leg curl variations, uh, also in non-machines, body weight variations. Cable exercises, I'm a big fan of cable exercises, many of which I named myself because I want very specific movement angles yeah. and resistance curves to overload muscles, a large range of motion, and also stimulate the muscles in different parts that are often neglected. For example, with a biceps curl, I use what I call a Bayesian curl, which is a cable curl, but unlike most people that do cable curls, you face away from the machine. So the, uh, the cable station is behind you. And the advantage of that is that you have a good stretch in the bottom position, so there's high tension on the biceps then, yeah. but also high tension on the biceps in full contraction. And you can also lean back in the stretch position to emphasize the stretch and lean forward to emphasize full contraction. Right. And compared to a dumbbell curl, that achieves much better mechanical tension, which is the primary driver of muscle growth. 
um, over the entire range of motion, whereas a dumbbell is limited by gravity. Uh, gravitational resistance only pulls straight down. So in the middle position of a dumbbell curl, when your arm is at a 90 degree angle compared to the floor, there's maximum tension. But in full contraction like this, so if you're here yeah. and the forearm is vertical, there's actually no tension on the biceps. And in the bottom position, when the arm is hanging straight down, there's also no tension on the biceps. Right. Because the biceps is only exerting force like that in a rotary fashion. Right. Uh, so if, with clever use of cables and some machines uh, where applicable, I like to sort of design my own exercises or get the exact variation I want uh, in a certain program. I like how you are nuanced there because I think in a lot of common discussion, a lot of people will critique machines as being, oh, you're just isolating muscles, you're not building up the supporting smaller muscle groups. But I think you bring up a very good point around the resistance of different zones of muscle. And I think our range of motion is fairly limited if you're just doing some very, very limited exercises and you're weak at extremities of that motion. And I think that's where injury pops up because you're in a very stretched up position, you have no power there because you never train that kind of extended motion. And that's actually where injuries happen in sport because at the limit of your range, you have no power at that range. So incorporating things like cables to strengthen those weak spots essentially is a smart strategy. Not even just for bodybuilding, but also for injury prevention. For sports and athletes, it generally makes a lot of sense to focus on cable and barbell like free weight exercises at least. Yeah. So machines can actually fulfill that purpose. It's not about whether it's a machine or a cable. It's about the freedom of movement. Yep. So there are pull-down machines, for example, with rotary handles that can travel in every direction. And that actually provides greater freedom of movement and a better, easier time for the elbows and uh, the wrists for many people compared to, say, a uh, chin-up, which has the, the wrists fixed because the bar is in a fixed position. Yep. And now the, the body is forced into a certain movement pattern that's dictated by uh, that fixed bar position. Yeah. And then the last point I want to bring up is that uh, a lot of people might think that you need to do that one rep max to get the max hypertrophy. And it sounds like there's some emerging evidence suggesting that if you do the same amount of effort over more and more repetitions, you can get the same amount of hypertrophy. And it sounds like there's a consideration also on training or injury rates. Here's your thoughts on the balance between just going for one rep maxes versus doing a lot of volume. And I guess, I mean, some people might say eight reps is high volume. When we say high volume, are you meaning 20 reps, 50 reps? How much is high volume? Yeah, so the uh, question is basically the considerations for the optimal exercise intensity. Yeah. Exercise intensity is generally defined as percentage of 1RM in exercise science. Yeah. Uh, so not to be confused with intensiveness, which is, you know, proximity to failure or effort. I would prefer the term relative load, but people use intensity. Uh, so I'll use it as well. Uh, research has found generally, uh, going back to 2002, Compost et al., I think, was the first to demonstrate that high rep work actually results in equal hypertrophy as low rep work on set per set basis if you are equating proximity to failure. So mm -hmm. if both groups are training, doing as many reps as they can, then you get the same muscle growth with high and low reps. And many research studies since then have verified that this holds true between the range of 4 to 30 reps generally. So it's mainly other considerations that matter because in the end, you sort of get the same mechanical tension on the muscle fibers. And with low reps, you get them from the start. But with high reps, you first build up fatigue and that increases uh, motor unit recruitment based on the size principle. So the type 2 fibers or the high threshold motor units with more type 2 fibers, they basically they kick in later. But in the end, you recruit them anyway, as long as you're going close to failure. Mm -hmm. So for muscle growth, 
you seem to get the same result. There is some controversy of whether the growth is more myofibular and contractile with heavyweights, whereas it's more possibly more sarcoplasmic with uh, lightweights. But most research suggests that it's not a big difference. Yeah. There is some research suggesting it differs per fiber type, though, especially when you go all the way up to 30 RM compared to, say, 90% of 1 RM. With 90% of 1 RM, you seem to get mostly type 2 fiber growth. Yep. So the more fast switch muscle fibers, more for explosive sports that have poor endurance but can lose uh, a lot of force, whereas uh, and force quickly, the type one fibers are more endurance-like, more better for uh, sustained combat, and you seem to target those a bit more if you go up to like thirty percent one RM or thirty RM, yeah, which is roughly uh, the same range uh, depending on the individual. And even within those fiber types, there's even like type 1, 2, type 1A, type 1B. So there's a lot mm. of nuance between the the types of muscle fibers that's sort of emerging research as well. Yeah, yeah. It's a rationale to include both in a, a training program. Yeah. The human physiology is so complicated and I think it's like hard to have one playbook that fits all, right? I think that's why you need experts like yourself walking through what are your goals, what is your, what is your baseline, how do we get you there? Cool. Let's move on a little bit to nutrition. I know we talked a little bit I think we had a good discussion on exercise protocols and considerations there. Nutrition, macros, bodybuilding has always been sort of at the forefront of nutrition ideas. I mean, I think there's been schools of thought where this is like six meals a day, maybe even mm -hmm. injecting extra insulin to build up bulk, right? For some of the more pharmaceutically assisted bodybuilders to now in more recent years, discussion or thoughts on ketogenic diet, fasting, and all of that. Obviously, roles for different types of goals. What are your thoughts broadly on nutrition and diet? And maybe as an anchor point, starting with the cut phase as an initial discussion point. So compared to bodybuilding coaches, at least, I'm generally renowned as sort of a low-protein, high-fat, low-carb uh, proponent. Uh, but that's, I'd say that's compared to the conventional dogma of uh, ex very excessively high-protein intakes, very high-carbohydrate high intakes, and almost negligible fat intakes yeah so actually i'd say my recommendations are quite in line with those of many official health authorities and from that reference it's the bodybuilders that are fat phobic basically yeah so i've done a lot of research on protein intake i think still the most popular art no it's not the most popular article anymore on my site but probably still ranks number one on google for optimal protein intake and uh, since then i've also participated in the latest meta-analysis on protein intake and on a randomized controlled trial to assess the effects of different protein intakes on muscular recovery. And it all points in the same direction, the same direction that's been pointing at since research by uh, Lemon and Tarnopolsky in the 90s, which is 1.6 gram per kilogram per day, total protein intake of total body weight suffices, which is 0.82 gram per pound of body weight, total body weight per day in protein. So for you know most people, it's gonna be- a For at rest or, or full exercise? I mean, or does that change? That's our daily average. Okay. Yeah. So it's not taking into account nutrient timing. You probably want to space most of that in your anabolic windows, so the more post-workout periods. Right. But that's like the daily average that okay. should suffice. And that's actually the 0.82 is, is 1.8 gram per kilogram, which is what I generally recommend. So I have a bit of a safety margin. Yeah. Research finds no benefits above 1.6, but I go up to 1.8 based on the same research by Lemon that I mentioned. Uh, he added a double, as it's called, uh, basically an error margin to make sure that even if you are an individual that falls you know, more than two standard deviations away from the normal, what we measure in any research, you are still covered yep. uh, because protein is so important. But bodybuilders basically take that as 
more is better. And they go up to ludicrously high intakes. And even if you point them to 10 studies, and now I think we literally have over 50 studies supporting this. Yeah. And, and they're like, yeah, but there's a potential benefit and no harm. So go higher. And that's it's true in the sense that there is no harm, but there is always a sacrifice in terms of you are giving up another micronutrient. Yep. So if you consume more protein, that means you have to consume fewer fats or carbs. And yep. that can itself uh, be detrimental for performance, health, satiety, etc. So not to mention, it's just it's a massive pain in the ass to consume, you know, 300 grams of protein every single day. Yeah. So I think for a lot of people, if you just stick to about 1.8 gram per kilogram or 0.82 gram per pound as a daily uh, minimum, you're covered. And if you go over it, it's generally fine as long as you don't dip too low in carbs or fats. But that's that's pretty much what you need uh, to get, which isn't that hard, right? If you're if you're used to, someone could just commented on my Facebook page, like you know, for a standard Indonesian diet, that is actually really hard to get that protein intake. Yeah. But for like an American diet, where it's easy to add a lot of animal protein sources to the diet, it's not that hard. Yeah, sounds very sensible in the sense that the orientation that you have sounds like is the right amount of protein, the right amount of carbohydrate, and then fill the rest with fat. And don't be fat phobic. Does that sound about yeah? So reasonable? I, did, I basically the the ratio of carbs to fat. I I tailored to someone's carbohydrate tolerance, which yep. is it sounds like bro science, but there is actually good research showing that people with different levels of insulin sensitivity or general carbohydrate tolerance, uh, insulin sensitivity is by far uh, not the whole story. But certain people, for whatever reasons, low poor insulin sensitivity, high fasting, insulin levels, right. general. Poor, dysregulated glucose homeostatics. Maybe they have pre-diabetes, they don't even know it, right? It's just exactly. Like some, some yeah. of those things. Yeah. So they, they respond better to low carbohydrate diets. Yep. And it's probably mostly just for just due to adherence. They have better satiety, they feel better, better moods. They also may be more lethargic if they have a very high carbohydrate intake and therefore have a lower energy expenditure because they have lower NEAT, as it's called, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So they're, they're more lethargic. They don't move as much, even subconsciously. Yep. So that determines why some individuals do better on low-carb diets. And it seems that based on at least one study, there are also people that actually do better on high-carb diets uh, or at least highly glycemic uh, diets. But those are, I'd say, very rare, and uh, it's within the realm of uh, just being a fluke. So based on that, if you're like someone's obese, it's very likely they are carbohydrate intolerant. So then I go higher in fats. And if you want a ketogenic diet, then you need to go high in fats and you need to restrict carbohydrates. Then my approach is generally a targeted ketogenic diet. And depending on the type of exercise, I think that can be perfectly fine for people interested in maximum muscle growth and especially fat loss. Because carbohydrate requirements really aren't that high. And for pure strength training, as many bodybuilders or even exercise scientists We'll have you believe we have a review in process actually at the moment where we uh, look at this and systematically review all the literature on the effects of carbohydrate intake yep. on pure strength training performance and there is a massive difference with strength training and say tennis because strength training is 20 seconds of exercise long rest period a lot of the muscle contractions about you know half of what you're doing is eccentric muscle action which doesn't have a high energy expenditure yeah and the, the total volume of work that you do is also far lower. So if you compare that with something that's mostly concentric, almost constant type activity, almost all falls in the most uh, glycolytic exercise range intensity. So that's most team sports, basically. Yeah. Then you're looking at a completely different level of carbohydrate requirements. Yep. So for like team sport tennis, I would not recommend a ketogenic diet. Uh, you know, it can work. 
but it's probably not going to optimize your performance. Because you're doing a lot of anaerobic, bursty type movements. You want to be pretty bursty and anaerobic. Yeah, Yeah, you're going to do that for like at least an hour generally. So uh, that's a very high volume of work, which is all reliance on uh, carbohydrates or uh, glycogen and glucose in the body. So pure strength training does not nearly have the same requirements. And especially also the rest between muscle groups is generally much longer. I mean, even if you train full body every time, every single day, which is what I actually do with many clients, was declared absolute heresy up until a few years ago. Yeah. You're still looking at 24 hours of recovery. And uh, there's a cool study by uh, Pasco et al., I think, uh, where they looked at how the body can resynthesize glycogen in the complete absence of nutrients, not even just absence of carbohydrates, but nutrients in general. And they found that within about six hours, 75% of glycogen was resynthesized even while fasted. And that's Probably mostly because of the quarry cycle. The quarry cycle, I was going to say, yeah. It's sort of a recycling system, whereby the, the lactate that is produced, not lactic acids, but lactate, technical difference, produced during exercise, is basically recycled back into glucose. And that, that's what the quarry cycle does. And the energy for that can be derived from fatty acids. So mitochondrial respiration. So basically, indirectly, your body can use the energy you consume from fats to fuel the recycling of glucose to lactate back to glucose yep. and then to lactate again to fuel uh, high intensity aero- anaerobic exercise performance right and if you combine that with the fact that there are still some carbohydrates in the diet i mean even a ketogenic diet you will still have you know 50 grams of carbs often right i'm not a proponent of literally trying to go zero carb but it, it can work for certain people for certain health effects you still have some carbohydrate intake and there's also the component of the glycerol backbone of uh, triglycerides that you eat in your diet. So the, the triglycerides that you eat have a glycerol backbone and free fatty acids. Yep. And the fatty acids can be used by mitochondrial respiration. So basically, if there's oxygen, the body can burn the fatty acids. Yeah, beta oxidation, yep, fat yeah. oxidation, yep. So with the glycerol backbone, can actually be converted to glucose. And it's normally thought that the contribution of that to total glucose production is very modest. But we do not have research on people that have a very high fatty acid or very high triglyceride intake and also a very high need to synthesize glucose. So if you combine those two things, probably the contribution of that, which you know remains unexplored, uh, I think can be very substantial. And enough with the quarry cycle and some carbohydrate in the diet that with quite a low carbohydrate intake, especially with a targeted ketogenic diet with more carbs pre and post workout, you know, five to 10 grams extra generally suffices. Uh, can uh, be sufficient to sustain strength training performance at 100% of the level of uh, high carb intake. Absolutely. I think that's a good breakdown on all the processes that the body has in place where carbohydrate is not necessarily a requirement. It's not necessarily an essential nutrient. Your body can generate through the Cori cycle, through uh, gluconeogenesis, through the glycerol backbone. You could also do some gluconeogenesis through amino acids, right? So you can turn, you can convert your own carbohydrate if you're not exogenously taking in yeah. uh, enough. But I think there is a question around: Is that optimal for performance? You know, I think that's where perhaps some keto advocates go a little bit too far. It's clearly possible to survive and be relatively healthy and happy with no carbohydrate. But is it optimal mm-hmm. for winning an Olympic medal in weightlifting? I think the jury is out for that. Or, or tennis, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, as like a team burst anaerobic type sport. Is it optimal for a football player? 
potentially yeah. not because why limit that extra substrate? I think it's overly easy to demonize carbohydrate as completely evil, but it is still a very efficient fuel and you might want that for certain sporting applications. Um, so I think Definitely. there, again, is that balance of, okay, uh, let's not go too far on either side in terms of just understanding what the actual substrate does. Yeah. And just because it's possible doesn't mean you have to do it. I mean, that's, I think, there are also a lot of keto haters. You know, yeah. there are some keto zealots, but there, I think, uh, and especially in evidence-based science, there are probably more keto haters yeah. that uh, <laughs> almost feel attacked when you say, you know, keto can work. And they're like, no, I don't want to do keto. So this, this must be uh, Satan's diet. This is evil. I don't want anything to do with this. This must be terrible. Yeah. So it's a tool, just like intermittent fasting. That's the way I see it. You can still go high carb. It doesn't change anything uh, But we know about how that diet works. Yeah. Like ketogenic diet, intermittent fasting. There, there are tools you have in your toolbox. Just like if someone you know comes up with a new exercise, you're not like, oh, I hate that exercise because I don't want to do it. Yep. Well, you don't have to do it. Yeah, it's extra. It might be optimal for you, but if you don't want to do it. Yeah. One thing that I saw you cover recently was exogenous ketones. That's a relatively new potential macronutrient that could be added to the mix. Obviously, there is a lot of hype on from certain people making claims. Maybe let's unpack that a little bit. Obviously, at HVMN, we very deep in the space with a ketone ester drink. So curious to get your thoughts on has exogenous ketones generally or ketone esters entered the bodybuilding world or the, the community that you've worked with? Uh, they certainly entered it, uh, but I can't say I'm a big fan of them. Depending on the application, most research has found that they're at least not better than, any, um, than just a high-carb or a straight ketogenic diet. For... Appetite management is most promising. Mental performance, physical performance are definitely very underwhelming in terms of research. Health is mostly unexplored, health effects. And that's probably the main reasons why uh, strength athletes take them at least. And in general, for all those things, research is at best, it's neutral. And yeah. some indications even say that it has detrimental effects on, for Absolutely. example, mental well-being and performance. So the, the magical, the desired idea is that you do a non-ketogenic diet. You don't have to bother with restricting your carbohydrate intake. And then you take the ketone drinks and then you get all the benefits of being in ketosis without actually having to do the work for it. That's the marketing. But in reality, it doesn't quite work that way because, um, well, probably the human body doesn't seem to be that metabolically flexible. And that if you have the ketones and the glucose, the body's not adapted to handle the ketones as well as you would be in a ketogenic diet. So that's a potential mechanism whereby it could hurt uh, physical performance. And instead of you know getting the best of both worlds, it's just like adding beer to your wine. And Right, you're shunning the glycolysis. Yes, unpack that a little bit in terms of unpacking apart the world of exogenous ketones. So there, there's a lot of work on ketone salts. And then also ketone esters. And I know what you're referring to in terms of neutral on performance or negative on performance, both physically and cognitively. Those have been focused on actually ketone salts, which actually don't get your ketone levels very high. But the data that we have on ketone esters is actually pretty positive. So I think I agree with you in the sense that exogenous ketones, it's... I think we'll have more and more nuance as people start understanding more of the different types of exogenous ketones, right? It's like, you know, a starch versus glucose versus maltodextrin versus fructose, all carbohydrate, but they actually they have they have very different functions and roles with the body. And I think the nuance between, you know, MCT oils, ketone salts, ketone esters, 
we'll probably have some of that more nuance. So happy to send you some of the papers on the ketone ester specifically that show that have pretty interesting results for both physical and cognitive sure, performance. Yeah. Love to get your thoughts on that. But I think, but I would agree with you, the, the broad point there, which is that there is a lot of marketing out there with exogenous ketones melting fat off your body, which is not the case, all right? Exogenous ketones are additional calorie sources. So if you're doing everything the same and then dumping extra ketone calories on top, it's not some magical substance that breaks a second law of thermodynamics that like deletes energy from your system. I think you did mention with some of the ghrelin suppression effects from a ketone ester, which was done by a, a research lead. And it was interesting to see that there's definitely some interesting data around what drives the appetite suppression effects of a ketogenic diet? Is it the high fat itself or maybe the ketones themselves? So I think a very interesting area of research. Yeah, I'm looking into potentially studying that. I have a bit much on my plate though. But 2020 maybe, study the appetite suppressive effect of uh, exogenous ketones and basically see if it's worth the calories. So yeah. I think that is the most promising area of research. Like I say, we don't know the exact mechanisms yet, but we do know that exogenous ketones and Ketosis itself are very appetite suppressing for yep. most people. If you guys are looking to do a ketone ester intervention, we, we'd be happy to help contribute or be a part of that. Because I know there's you know different forms of that. So yeah, I think that's a, a very interesting area of research. Cool. So I think we covered a broad gamut of you know your history, your PT practice, and then a little bit of the the best practices for physical training and then nutrition. Uh, what are our folks? What are our listeners follow along and, and, and keep track? I mean, obviously, you're a wealth of knowledge. Menoensimals.com, uh, so my name.com, has pretty much everything published, most study reviews and the like. I do on social media, so especially on Facebook, also Instagram. I'm somewhat active on Twitter, but mainly just post my article links. So if you're looking into following the, the latest exercise science and stuff, then my social media are best. And otherwise, if you just want broad applications, in-depth articles, I also have a free email course. Probably best to get as an idea of everything I've published, my scientific publications and uh, LA man's breakdown, what it means. And then... I'll post anything there that uh, I'm up to and new projects uh, I'll be doing. Really a fun conversation, Menno. Appreciate the time. My pleasure. Likewise. All right, cheers. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. If you want to learn more about HVMN and our offerings, visit www.hvmn.com slash pod. Also, by writing a review on our iTunes page and sending a screenshot to podcast at hvmn.com, we'll hook you up with $15 worth of HVMN store credit. Our last shout out goes out to our listener survey, which lets us know who you are better so we can continue making episodes you find most valuable. Visit go.hvmn.com slash podcast survey for that survey. It'll only take a few minutes and new submissions are eligible for an HVMN ketone giveaway. Until next time, eat well, train smart, and live your life.